God's Providence. I'm Thomas Horrocks. Actually, today I am sipping on peppermint tea and honey. Real dangerous, I know. But here in Indiana, uh, you can't buy beer on Sundays, and I didn't oh, no. plan ahead well enough. My gosh. So, honey, water, is that a, a stone original right there? That sounds <laughs> kind of... That's right. That's a... Yeah, it's a, it's a, ho- a homebrew. Oh, homebrew. Okay, so dogfish head. I gotcha, I gotcha. Well... As for me and my family, we are sipping the uh, Stone Vengeful IPA. So you got tropical notes, you got a bit of sweetness, kind of a kind of a papaya kind of vibe with it, a little bit of mango. It's a decent little IPA. Uh, unfortunately, in the godless state of California, you can get beer whenever you want. So I picked some up this day right now. So cheers to uh, all who are sipping something and to those who are driving to work. Probably should stick with Thomas's brewed concoction right there. All right, so segue into serious stuff so the question we asked thomas is what kind of questions should we be thinking about with a new christian podcast well i think uh one of the reasons that you and i decided we wanted to do this was because you and i both have um a heart for the academy as well as a local church and we Mm -hmm. thought that um given our recent education uh, both of us just recently graduated seminary in the past couple years that we might be able to help bridge the gap between uh the academy and the church for one yeah, that's a major thing I've noticed is every time I, well, at least even when I was in seminary, I'd be going into a place with, well, I, I like the word just normal people, people who don't know Greek and Hebrew, but know the word, know uh, they know scripture and they know the life experiences they have. And it's always really awkward to then hear them talk about stuff and you kind of sit and you're like, oh gosh, I don't know how to have a conversation with you. Like it's just it, the weird thing just kind of happens. At least I don't know if that happened with you, but that happened to me continuously. Yeah, um, that I that definitely happened to me. One of the uh, things that's helped me actually is um, I'm a pastor at a small semi-rural church in Indiana, um, and my congregation is mostly older folks uh, who don't have this education. So it's sort of forced me uh, to to um, figure out how to talk about these things in a way that are not super heady, um, because you know when I mention some of the things that I think are really interesting and uh, it they just sort of get blank stares on their face. So uh, that's really helped me learn to um, focus what I talk about in a way that is applicable to people who maybe don't love reading a thousand-page books in Greek and Hebrew like we do. Yeah, there's way too much uh, Greek and Hebrew love for us on that point. But it's interesting because uh, I'm in Pasadena, which is incredibly urban, but it's not as urban as, say, Glendale or Burbank, you know, about an hour or half hour away, depending on traffic, where literally everything in Los Angeles kind of happens. And so it's really interesting to get you get basically the both of the best of both worlds on this. You get the really urban kind of center, at least with me, and you get the kind of rural setting. And I imagine is I've noticed and I, this is a question for you. This isn't scripted or anything. I'm just curious. Uh, you've lived in a more urban setting and you're pre- pastoring in a rural setting, right? Yeah, so Bloomington, Indiana uh, is is sort of both. My church is, is kind of rural, but it's also by Indiana University, which is the largest university, I believe, I, I could be wrong, but the largest university in Indiana. Uh, so I've got kind of, kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, because I've noticed with here, most of Los Angeles is highly urbanized, so you have a lot of very highly educated people, not necessarily in scripture per se, just your average person, but experts in, um, I don't know, like uh, engineering, and you have people who are doctors and lawyers and stuff like that, and it's basically everyone you meet on the street, at least in Pasadena, is they're highly educated, but there's not, and this is something you and I have talked about, is there's not a lot of 
there's not a way of bridging kind of the stuff you and I read or can't read, you know, with uh, people who need to know this stuff but don't have the time to read, you know, a book, a 500-page book on, you know, a verbal aspect in the New Testament when you and I can barely get through it, of course, as well. Yeah, I, that's that's a good point. And so I think this will um, help us really maybe bridge that gap and then maybe for you and I it'll help us uh, you know sort of focus on the things that um, make a real difference in the Christian life because I think it's easy in academia sometimes for us to get wrapped up in in things like that that at the end of the day don't necessarily make us better Christians or better followers of Jesus um, so I think it's good sometimes that we we have that balance and we and we're around those people who remind us that you know verbal aspect um, isn't what gets you into heaven. Yeah, contrary to many people in my own thoughts sometimes. But what's interesting, too, is it's a way of kind of letting us know who or why we're, what we learned and who it's for. We can say, you know, we learn scripture to the glory of God. We learn about these various doctrines. But if we can't preach them and guide people and have ourselves be guided by these people and these these great truths, then what, what's the point of learning these things? What's the point of spending and investing all this time and especially money these days in this if it's not for the glory of the church and the glory of the body? I think that's a great point. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned when we first started talking about doing this podcast is there's a lot of podcasts out there that are very deconstructionist. They'll they'll break down you know things that maybe we believe that aren't right, uh, and, and we sort of decided that we don't want to just do that. We want to do something a little bit more uh, that more. I think how you put it was a positive reconstruction or a, a positive holistic vision of Christian discipleship. Can you hmm. explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, and that's something I've noticed too is I love these podcasts, you know, the deconstruction guys and, and gals. They're, they're really interesting to listen to. But you get a sense in which at the end of the podcast, once you hear the theme music kind of roll us out into the real world, you're kind of left with not really any specific way of living or even necessarily thinking in a way that bridges that, that divide between, we'll say, head and heart. And so when for example, someone will throw out something about how, I don't know, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, and they'll give you a hundred reasons why. And then you're, all right, thanks for listening to the podcast, you know, and shoo, shoo, shoo. And you're kind of left there wondering, how does this build up the body? How does critical scholarship build up the body, or how, or should it? Or how? what's the relationship between these sorts of, of critical ideas and things we have to wrestle with in seminary and in real life? And if it's just merely for the sake of wrestling with an idea and not using it to build yourself into a better person by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you're kind of left with this idea, I think, that you're not viewing the body as a positive thing. You're using, you're in some sense, not all senses, you're viewing the, the church as something to fight and wrestle and like rebel against. And it's not to say there's not problems with the church. I'm not trying to communicate that. But there is, I think, a sense in which deconstruction is kind of a hallmark of, of our generation. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not opposed to deconstruction, but it has to have a point to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I love that. In that after positive or after deconstruction, there needs to be a positive reconstruction. Um, I think, you know, if we start talking about these things, which are good to talk about, I mean, you know, anybody with Google these days can, you know, Google things about um, the Bible and realize that maybe some of the things that we were taught in our Sunday school class growing up aren't necessarily, you know, what scholarship says. But but what do we do with that, and and how do we come out on the other side with a stronger faith and maybe a more realistic and robust faith instead of just a, a shattered foundation. So I think that's one of the things that we, we definitely want to try to do with this podcast. Um, and in that, we want to help people engage the scriptures more faithfully. What does that mean? Oh gosh, it means, I think, if we just want to get nerdy, we want to read the Bible as Jesus read his Bible and as Paul read his Bible. But we can't do that without knowing what the world means in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And 
coupled with that, we need to know how our world thinks, right? And so it's a way of kind of bridging both the modern world and, and ancient history, and that's fundamentally, I think, what Christian theology is all about, is what does uh, history mean to us? You know what I mean? How do we think about God's invasive work in, in history, or do we think about that? And that's where you get a lot of, you know, that's where you get more questions about certain theological issues and historical issues. But reading scripture faithfully, faithfully means taking history faithfully, I think is ultimately what I'm trying to get at. In other words, uh, we don't believe that the Bible was uh, dropped out of heaven in English, leather-bound with Jesus' words in red. It was uh, composed over a long period of time by lots of different authors whom we believed were inspired by the Holy Spirit as they wrote, but they wrote for a certain cultural context, and they wrote in different languages, and in order for us to really understand it, we have to get back into that time and into that culture. Is that sort of what you're getting at? I think so. In addition to that, I think that's a really good way of summarizing it, and I only would add that it means taking them seriously, but not taking them literally all the time. And so you have that problem of, you know, uh, of taking something literally and, you know, you end up, you know, stoning your child or something like that. And so I think it means we need to take scripture seriously and not, uh, and not look for every scripture to be applied. All scripture is God-breathed and suitable, but not every scripture is applicable to every situation. And that's something I think the church needs to take into consideration as well. That's a really good way to put it. And we'll definitely get into some of those principles in some later episodes as we talk about how to faithfully uh, engage with Scripture in a way that is uh, that takes it seriously and takes the culture and the context and, uh, and the language and all of those things seriously in some future episodes. But um, before we get into what we're going to talk about today, I, I think a lot of our audience members are probably going to ask, what in the world does synergist mean? That, it, that's, a, that's a weird word, uh, Nick. How did, how did we come up with that? Uh, it was after sipping some really interesting beer. It was a lavender beer, and I was in a bad mood, and I felt like I, felt like I needed to like, think critically about something. And, and it was something, I think, when, we cons- when I considered this, and I threw it with you, and we kind of talked it through. I mean, as, as fundamentally, theology can be boiled down to, uh, in a lot of ways, monergism versus synergism, but you also have various issues with that, but it also depends on how you apply these terms and in what sense and to whom do these terms apply. But as someone who is essentially a synergist, I'm you know a, a Baptist Wesleyan, or Waptist, as, as I've joked about myself, and so there's a sense in which um, a, a, there's a, a, a movement, uh, we would say the perhaps the Young Restless Reformed movement, God bless them, we love them, our brothers and sisters, of course, and that will come out throughout the show. But there is a sense in which synergism, while often a default perspective for many Christians, is also being challenged very strongly by other brothers and sisters. And so it's a way of kind of staking a theological place, so to speak. So please go ahead. Uh, let me back up. I think you used a word that may be familiar to some of our listeners, but may maybe not familiar to other listeners. What is synergism? Oh, it's the belief that uh, human beings uh, have what is called libertarian free will, the the desire or the ability to freely make a choice or not make a choice. And essentially there is co-option or I would say free uh, faithful participation between God and humanity. That's essentially, and monergism, for instance, and these are, of course, very broad terms and very specific connotations. But modernism essentially is the belief that God unilaterally does certain things and human beings do not. Uh, participate in these things. It's as a consequence in a lot of ways. And so there's also the idea of unconditionality and all these sorts of ideas that are wrapped up into it. So essentially it's not co-op, it's not a co-participatory. There we go. Okay. So synergism though is spelled S-Y-N-E-R-G-I-S-M. But our 
podcast is spelled S-I-N-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-S. What, what in the world is that about? Well, we are, of course, Sinners Saved by Grace. And there's also, I think, a, a running joke we have uh, that synergism is viewed as a sinful theology. It's viewed in terms of, say, I don't know, the Roman Catholics believe that or the Eastern Orthodox believe that and all these sorts of things. And so it's a way of kind of it's, it's essentially it's a it's a it's a funny pun to us that we're essentially staking out a theological ground. But we're recasting it in the sense of this is probably the biblical position, but it's also the position that calls us into just having theology with a light heart but with it with it with a you know with a way of thinking uh, deeply about these things so in other words what you're trying to say is we're trying to maybe poke a little light-hearted fun at our uh, calvinist brothers and sisters is that right i'm not going to confirm or deny that that's the entire reason but i would be remiss to say yeah that's kind of part of it too <laughs> okay cool all right so the first question we want to deal with uh, is essentially this is boils down to a huge debate even just and it's a debate that touches on all these other little key points but what is a Christian? I mean it seems simple but there's a lot of contrary information out there contradictory stuff going on different fights about uh, superlapsarian, infralapsarian, all these other terms I don't really want to discuss or define but words have been kind of diluted and as you've re- mentioned made into an adjective you know Christian music Christian manhood, Christian bookstore, all these other things and so Thomas we should start with this, uh, not what is a Christian, but what is not a Christian, as commonly defined. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question, because uh, like you said, there is a lot of, uh, you know, we, we've appended Christian to a lot of different things, uh, as if a bookstore can really be uh, a Jesus follower, and I'm, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself there. Uh, but so, so things that uh, Christianity in some circles is commonly believed, but that I think we're going to demonstrate that it's not. Uh, Christianity is not just about believing the right things. That That's uh, a part of Christianity, um, but it, the heart of Christianity is not uh, assent to propositional statements. Uh, those are important, but there's there's so much more to that. Um, it, it's not just saying a prayer. You know, there was a, there's a whole uh, there was a whole movement in the uh, 20th century about you know these these crusades and if you just if you just say this prayer then you you know you have this you know you've got your ticket to heaven you've got your fire insurance so to speak uh, and, and we believe that uh, in its essence Christianity is really a lot more than that there's more than just saying a prayer so that you can escape um, hell at some point in the future there's 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 more to that um, and so I think one of the ways that we can maybe tackle this question is looking at where the word Christian originated. Um, We use it all the time, we append it to everything, but uh, looking at the first use of the word I think might help us understand uh, what was really meant by the term. Uh, And the first time the the word that we know the word was ever used actually shows up in our Bibles, uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 26. It's where uh, Paul and Barnabas were with the church in Antioch. Uh, And Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Uh, I think that's really interesting. Uh, they were called Christians. In other words, it wasn't it wasn't a name that they ca- came up with for themselves. It was a name that was first given to them uh, by outsiders. Yeah, and that's really interesting because it brings into questions about why weren't they called Christians, you know, from the very beginning, and why wasn't this say a a a, a title that br- that we decided for ourselves? Like, yes, we will be called X, Y, and Z, which begs, of course, the question: What were we called before then? So I'm throwing this back at you right now. What do you think we were called if we even had a title, or were we known as something completely different? 
Well, it seems like the the term that was used before that was disciples. Um, you know, that was the, the term that Luke used. That's a term we see a lot in the, the Gospels following Jesus. Uh, they were just called disciples. Uh, you know, as we know, the, the Greek word mathetes, which had a, a very specific connotation, had a very specific definition within that uh, context and within that culture. Uh, if you were a disciple of somebody, it, me- it meant that you were a committed follower. Um, Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he says, A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. In other words, Jesus is showing us that that the idea behind discipleship is that you seek to become like the one that you're learning from, your teacher or your master. So there's this element of really following after the teacher. Uh, that's what made one a disciple. And and we can, when we look at uh, Acts 11:26, we see that the disciples were called Christians by outsiders, which I think is fascinating. Um, and so the the word Christian uh, in Greek, as we know, is Christianos, um, and that that suffix that I A N O S at the end was a fairly common suffix back in that time, and it was applied uh, at the end of somebody's name to people who followed that person. For instance, in Scripture, we read about the Herodians. This was a political party uh, in relation to King Herod. Herod, and then the the suffix I A N Herodian. Uh, these were followers, people associated with Herod, and so with Christian. What we see is outsiders are looking at these people who are living in a certain way and they're identifying them as followers, as being associated with Christ by their observation. I think that's fascinating. And I think in addition with that, uh, we don't have, I think you said, we don't, I think disciples are a really good word. I think there's also other ideas of this too. Uh, and it's uh, kind of the prepositional phrase, the en Christo language, you know, the in Christ language. And uh, you have also language of, you know, if you are in Christ, new creation, whoever's in Christ has been baptized and all these sorts of things. So it's, it's got kind of a, a, a participatory flavor and a spatial idea in Christ or among Christ or with Christ. And not only that, that's where we get the, a lot of the language of, of saints, you know, Haggai, you know, the, the saints are the holy ones or the set apart ones. But any sort of language that's involved with these, you know, whether it's discipleship or in Christness or holiness or holy ones, is always associated not entirely with propositionalism, but with with participationism, how we act. And it's it's a way of, of participating and living our lives in a way that reflects our teacher as is Christ. Exactly. Uh, there, so there's propositional beliefs that are a part of that, but it's not really the core. The core is our identity in and our obedience to Christ. And, and some of our, uh, you know, more Reformed people might might take issue that we're talking about, you know, obedience being the center of what it means to be uh, a Christian. But when we look at the, the definitions of Scripture and when we look at what being a disciple really meant in that culture, there was an aspect of obedience. Um, Jesus said, you know, why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? Right. I mean, as if, uh, you know, so I think we're going to we're going to tackle some of that stuff. Um, but one of the fascinating things that, that we see in Scripture is that uh, there's this there's this Greek word that's used a couple of times, mimetes. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. So mimetes um, in the New Testament, it's, it's a word that means imitator. Um, uh, it, so we, you know, if, if you, 
mimic somebody. That's where we get our, our English word mimic. Uh, it means to mimic Christ, or, or Paul says in Ephesians 5, to, to be mimetes, to, to be imitators of God. Uh, that's really what it means to be a Christian, to, to imitate Christ, to seek to become like Christ. Um, I was reading recently, again, through C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which is a fascinating book. It's, it's one of the, the only books that I have found myself both vigorously nodding my head in approval and then vigorously shaking my head in disapproval of di- different sections. But I think he really gets at something um, really great at, at one spot. Uh, near the end of the book, um, he says, Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. And I, I think he, he really nails it there. That's what being a Christian is. It's becoming a little Christ. Uh, we become imitators of Christ as we grow in holiness, as we grow in Christ-likeness. And that's what Christianity uh, is really all about. Um, uh, so it, it's, more than, it's more than just knowledge about proper doctrine. you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, in that text you quote in Ephesians 5, you know, therefore become... Uh, ch- uh, uh, mimics or imitators of God as little beloved children. So you get that great you know, agape language, the lovingness of this. And then in, ver- in Ephesians 5, 2, you know, and walk in love, just as also Christ loved us and delivered himself up for us as a, as a, as a, as a offering and a sacrifice to God uh, as a scent of pleasant aroma. Sorry, I'm, I'm translating in my head right there from Ephesians 5. But just this idea of living or walking in love is a direct consequence of being imitators of God in Christ. I think that's something we often miss out on. It's not to say, this is not to point at any specific theological camp. I think most theological camps have this problem. But if we're not offering our lives to Christ in a way that illustrates the love of Christ through God and the power of the Holy Spirit, then I think we've missed the propositional or the uh, the the uh, participatory water, the participatory trees for the um, the uh, propositional forest, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. And I love what you said about, uh, you know, bringing that as dear children in Ephesians. Um, as you know, I have uh, a, a daughter who's almost two, uh, and it's amazing, you know, how closely she watches and, and what she does. She learns by trying to become like us, which uh, sometimes is, is really cute and adorable and is good, and then other times, you know, habits that aren't so good. But she mimics them. She imitates them because she knows that we love her and because she loves us. That's the kind of relationship. So I'm really glad you pointed that out. Yeah, and it's just, it's a great text, and I think that's something we, we forget, too, is we have a really great influence, not just on, on our children, but also on other people. I mean, Christ had a major influence on us, and he's dead. Well, not anymore, he's raised, but there is a sense in which I think there's a, a, a deep calling and a, a deep desire to be like one another, not at the expense where we lose ourselves in one another, but that we have this mutual kind of influence on one another by the power of the Spirit. And I think that's something we forget a lot about, and uh, and so that brings us, I think, to our our second question, it's kind of the question, at least I brought up, it's the question of, I call it essentialism, right? So what makes one's identity essentially Christian? And I, and I was curious, I wanted to read something real quick uh, from George Marsden, who's a uh, professor at, or he's a professor emeritus at Notre Dame. In his book, he wrote on uh, for, uh, Fuller Seminary, it's called Reforming Fundamentalism. It's just a great book. Um, he gives us kind of an insight onto the questions evangelicals were talking about in the 50s and before then. And so kind of what, what were these essential things, you know, that, you know, in order to be to uh, get into a seminary uh, that you had to ask and discuss. And all of it literally boils down to stuff, you know, I kind of joked about. 
For example, give the chief arguments for the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Quote, how would you reply to the statement that the nativity narrative of Luke is a later insertion? And then all these other kind of questions. Did God die on the cross? Explain the significance and ground for the neo-Orthodox formula, every man is Adam. What is the instrumental cause of justification in biblical theology and in Roman theology? And stuff like that. You just kind of keep going on. You get to see what our evangelical history is concerned with. And it kind of begs the question of, should we be concerned with these things? They're not clear about clear standard Christian doctrines like mosaic authorship or other things. And so again, I guess, Thomas, what, how do we determine the, quote, center of Christian theology if we have to engage in propositionalism? How do we, what is the proposition, so to speak, that we must affirm in order to be essentially Christian? Well, I think that's really the perennial question, though, isn't it? I mean, we, we have been arguing about essentialism for almost 2,000 years now, uh, the, the things that you have to believe. Um, and, and even, uh, you know, identifying what is essential and what isn't, because we have that great phrase that is uh, often attributed to uh, John Wesley, even though we know it wasn't, um, in... Uh, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. But that begs the question, what really are the essentials? Um, and it's something I've been wrestling with for, for the past couple of years. Uh, and I think, so for me, um, I think the the essentials are the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus. That seems to be the central theme of the, the preaching in Acts, um, the earliest formula, so to speak, um, that w- without those two things, you really don't have a gospel. But I, I welcome you know you or our listeners to push back on that. And I think a lot of them will. I don't think I would necessarily even disagree with that. I think the bodily resurrection of Jesus, without that, we don't have a New Testament. We don't have any any history at all, really, to talk about as Christians. And so I think 1 Corinthians 15, if you kind of really want to build upon that, is kind of the best building model. But at the same time, the whole um, concept of essentialism is, you know, I kind of bristle with that as you do. But it is a, is a, it is a question that needs to be wrestled with. And I think if we use the resurrection, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as kind of the, the starting point as our hermeneutical kind of prioritization, then we can see, okay, then what follows from this? You know, okay, so there, then you can kind of follow, you know, then, then the debate is not about what is essential, but what uh, is essential to the foundation, if that makes sense. So, but the issue is, of course, what is foundational and then what is essential? So we, I might have, re- have to rephrase my own question, if that makes sense. That sounds like a seminarian. Yeah, well, I paid a lot of money to ask these sorts of questions. So, <laughs> uh, so I think those are some good questions. I think those are some things that we'll wrestle with uh, as we move through some of these future uh, episodes. As we dive into scripture, we'll say, "What does it really mean? Um, is this is this essential?" And and so what? I think that's you know one of the questions that we can ask. Uh, we should ask is so what what is what is the practical outworking of this does this help us become more like christ does this increase in us love for god and love for neighbor um or you know what what is you know the so what i think that so what question is always really important yeah and it's the question it's the perennial question jesus is lord well so what you know, it, you know, he's not here now. I don't see him walking around. I don't see him, you know, doing all these things. And it's kind of that perennial question we all have to wrestle with. But I think if I think the lordship aspect, you know, the great Romans uh, 10 text, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so it's it, it centralizes Christ as a foundation and as a um, as an essential to the Christian faith. Of course, then every single episode on this will follow. 
what is essential to the person of Christ and the work of Christ in our lives in a way that builds upon how we live our lives. And so I think if we really, if we want to propositionalize it in only one sentence and not, you know, go, not the German sentence where it's, you know, an entire page, what one sentence like under a tweet is it? And it's, I think you and I would agree that the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus as an attestment to the historical reality of what God has done in the world. I think you could probably tweet that actually. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty good. You might tweet that after our our first podcast goes out. I think I might be cool with that. Uh, And so, yeah, and I think that's where the big question kind of boils down to for us. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, And then what what that resurrection really then means. Um, And I think we can make a a good case that the resurrection... proves, uh, or, or the, I like the, the theological term, it vindicates the lordship of Jesus and, and all that that uh, means. So I'm, I'm excited to get into some of this stuff uh, as we move forward. Um, so in light of all that, what, uh, where are we, we going to go from here? I mean, we could go anywhere we want at our podcast, but I think, uh, I think something we'll do over the course of the year and it is, uh, it'll be a positive vision of West, the Wesleyan worldview that includes you know, scripture, so it'll include exegesis of certain texts or biblical themes, reason and philosophy and tradition, so patristics, but also experience as well. We can't really miss out on this. Wesley didn't make experiences guiding light, but he did say in the light of scripture, human experience becomes far easy to see and far easy to kind of understand. And so it'll include kind of how we view scripture and scriptural texts and ideas. And so we'll dive into the Greek and the Hebrew and fun stuff like that. But I think additionally, it'll it'll have a fair evaluation with opposing views that illustrates the love of God for all of God's children. And that includes our Reformed brothers and sisters, our Open Theist brothers and sisters, and all these other people we might have disagreements with. And I think uh, that's a distinctive of the Wesleyan holiness tradition is the love of God for all people and how that impacts our lives. And so future topics might include uh, a, pro- a Wesleyan approach to political and social issues that illustrates the love of God in Christ. Prevenient grace, I think, will be a big issue because that is a Wesleyan distinctive, the love of God. Uh, and another one would be uh, Christian perfection as kind of an idea. And we're, we're in talks of having some potential uh, guests on. I won't name their names because they didn't say yes or no yet. But, That's uh, probably and wise. also introducing... Yeah, probably very wise. It's Wesleyan wise. Uh, and a potential introduction to something called Hoppy Hour. So uh, do you want to talk a bit about that? Hoppy hour, yeah. So one of the things that we thought about, uh, as you have mentioned, where as we record these uh, podcasts, we're going to be sipping on something. Hopefully, I won't always be relegated to hot peppermint tea with honey, although that was pretty good. Uh, but we thought, you know, uh, obviously, to to produce these kinds of things takes time and resources, and the uh, uh, you know the bandwidth and all that costs money. So we thought that uh, what we might do is start a uh, Patreon account. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and then for those who uh, are willing to maybe kick in a dollar or two, just join us on a um, you know an open chat where you sip on what you like and ask questions, and we'll just discuss aspects of life and theology together uh, in the digital world. Yeah, and that's basically what it is. It's it's a way of kind of hanging out with family, basically. If we're all a Christian family, it's a way of hanging out and just sipping on the grace of God uh, one beer at a time. Well, uh, I love it. I think uh, that sounds like a good plan. Uh, Amen to that. And I think, uh, thank you, Thomas, for taking the time out of this. And thank you to me for taking the time out of this. We're both insanely busy. And I know you've got a daughter and all that fun stuff that entails. So I'm grateful you've jumped in on this with me. This is going to be a lot of fun, I think. I really agree. I think this is going to be good. Hopefully it'll be helpful uh, for our listeners. Uh, If they want to get in contact with us or ask any questions, what's the best way for them to do that? 
The best way probably is uh, to tweet at us. We have it's at synergists spelled the center way, synergists pod. And so uh, we got a few followers already. Two, if we include my wife, it's three, but that doesn't count. Uh, but you can get in touch with us there. You can get in touch with us on the Hotmail account. It's a Hotmail we just made, if it'll just pop right up right here. Yep, it'll be under uh, Synergist, spelled the center way, at Outlook.com. And you can get in touch with us there. Or if you want to just hang out with us on Twitter, Tom and I are both there at uh, Nicholas Quint. And at, was it, at Thomas Horrocks, all one word? It's uh, at Thomas L. Horrocks, Thomas L. Horrocks. But I am on a bit of a Twitter sabbatical. So uh, go ahead and follow me. I'll follow you back. But I won't be tweeting very much for uh, at least the next three months and potentially the next year. But we can talk about that maybe on a future episode. Amen to that. All right. And this is Nick and Thomas. And you're listening to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the Internet by God's Prophet.